Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, I'm speaking to you from the Appalachian Trail somewhere in Connecticut. I'm known as uh, Pineapples <laughs> on Trail. Um, and I just wanted to say, like, thank you for making your podcast, for talking to all these wonderful people. I just listened to your last episode with Jim Holama, and it was very insightful and beautiful to hear her story. Um, and you're such a good storyteller yourself. And you have a way to bring out these beautiful stories within other people and I just want to thank you. I'm very grateful to have your voice in my head <laughs> on trail. So keep doing what you're doing um, as long as it continues to serve you. All right, buddy. Take care. Pineapples. Thank you, brother. That's really kind. It's sweet. I mean, you got my voice on the trail and I've got your trail experience in my head a little bit. So it's uh, it's a win-win. Really nice to be out there with you. Um, yeah. So that and and yeah, you're right. I mean, Jim, what a what a cool lady. huh? Really just I, I love that kind of thing, you know, where you just meet somebody randomly and they agree to sit down and and just sort of review the path of their lives over an hour or two with you. It's just uh, it's such a privilege. It's so fucking awesome to have this job, if that's what this is. And I owe it to you guys. People who are listening to this are the only reason that it works. So thank you for your attention. Um, this episode is with a guy named Craig Scholey, who's another person I met randomly. I was in Arusha, Tanzania, a week or two ago, and uh, I went to the um, Cultural Heritage Center, which is kind of a museum, but it's free, and most of the stuff is for sale, and it's just an incredible space. I mean, the building is is designed to look like a drum and a spear and a shield and you know in sort of reflecting african culture and then inside it's i don't know five stories or more with like a a spiral ramp in the center it's kind of like the um, is it the guggenheim in new york that's designed like that anyway it's just full of this incredible african art uh, i've posted a couple shots on instagram um and i'm I also recorded uh, an episode with the uh, the director, uh, the founder of the place, uh, Safe. That'll be the next episode. But this episode is a guy I met. I was in there just kind of walking around, and I saw that um, there was a, a space where they're setting up a, a photography exhibition. And um, there was a dude who was obviously the silverback sort of uh, in charge of everything, and I got to chatting with him, and turns out he's a world-renowned gorilla expert by the name of Craig Scholey, and uh, he agreed to sit down and, and uh, interrupt his very busy day, uh, his days. He's, he's there setting up this um, 
um, what is it, wildlife, African wildlife photography uh, competition, uh, which we talk about in the conversation a bit. So he was very busy with that, getting all the prints and the labels and everything that was going to open in a day or two. And uh, so it was kind of an imposition for him to basically give me his lunch hour. And uh, we went down to the auditorium and we talked a bit about his career, which is fascinating. I'm reading from the African Wildlife Foundation website. Uh, This is uh, Craig Scholle's experiences with wildlife and conservation began in 1973 as a Peace Corps volunteer in Zaire. Uh, He studied uh, mountain gorillas with Diane Fossey, who you may have heard of. She was profiled in a film called Gorillas in the Mist. Um, And, uh, yeah, he has acted as scientific advisor for the IMAX film Mountain Gorilla with National Geographic. So he's a big deal in the world of African wildlife and particularly the world of mountain gorillas. So I was very happy to get a chance to chat with him. Before we get to that conversation, I want to tell you about the podcast Risk. You may have heard the episode I did recently with uh, Kevin. It's uh, he's the the founder and host of the Risk podcast, Kevin Allison. It's a podcast that's all about radically honest, true stories. So if you're into that, you'll love the Risk podcast. It's a show where people tell these kind of stories, stories they never thought they'd share stories too uncensored for public radio nothing's too intimate too loaded sometimes they're funny sometimes they're scary sometimes they're beautiful sometimes they're just fucking weird there's a story about a guy who got kidnapped for a, by a drug cartel the girl who discovered she was living with a cannibal a woman who learned the person she was sharing kinking fantasies with online was actually her dad <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I told a story on risk about the time I was doing acid in Tikal and got bitten by a scorpion or bitten or stung. I guess you get stung by scorpions, right? They don't bite you. Um, anyway, slate called risk jaw dropping, hilarious and just plain touching and Rolling Stone named it one of their top podcasts of the year. Kevin and I are doing a little uh, awareness exchange. He's reminding people about Tangentially Speaking for the month of July, and I'm reminding people about the Risk podcast because I think there's a lot of overlap between our audiences. So if you want to hear some edgy stories, some stories that definitely push the envelope, check out the Risk podcast. Uh, R-I-S-K show dot com. All right. I'm going to play you out with a tune called Like the Love But Love the Pain. It's by a dude named Queasy or Quasi. Not sure. K-W-E-S-I. He listens to the podcast. Uh, I got an email from him a couple of weeks ago saying, hey, want to share some music? I listened to the pod since 2017. And uh, I clicked on the link and listened to some of this dude's music on Spotify. It's fucking awesome. He's really good, really talented, love the music. Um, There's a song called Another Time that is just absolutely mesmerizing. Um, And this song is called Like the Love, But Love the Pain. Words of wisdom for all of us. Uh, you can check him out. He's got a, his website is uh, kwesi.us. That's us, not com. 
uh, and his music is on Spotify and Apple and, you know, wherever you get your music. Quasi, K-W-E-S-I. Thanks for listening to this. As always, I'll be back with you soon. Sending you lots of love from Tbilisi, Georgia. I just wanna live a good life Brooklyn, streetlights Got in a fight, but it's alright I like the pain, but just a touch I don't wanna live the best I just wanna live a good life I never cared for playing by the rules I'm tired of only living by the truth I wanna limit my expectations You wanna have it all, but I ain't got the motivation Ain't something that's new What do you want me to do? Craig Scholey, is that pronounced correctly? Uh, and Craig is in the middle of setting up this big photography exhibit, so this is going to be a quick hit. Um, but thank you for taking the time to, to do this. I you're, really appreciate it. You're very it. welcome. Happy to be here. I looked I looked you up online and it, you know immediately saw that I could pick your brain for days and days and days. Um, uh, there's so many things I'd love to talk with you about. I guess the main thing I'd like to take advantage of with having this time is is to talk about gorillas. Um, I don't know much about gorillas. I've studied chimps and bonobos a lot. Uh, as you know, I've spoken with Franz Duvall and um, 
But gorillas are, because they're less relevant to human uh, models of behavior, I haven't focused on them as much. I wonder if you have any stories of communication with gorillas or personal relationships. Have all the gorillas you've worked with been in the wild? Uh, or have you worked with gorillas in captivity as well? So, Chris, my, my background is is biology. Um, right. I've played a bunch of different roles in conservation. But um, my first contact with gorillas was as a Peace Corps volunteer. In just, Zaire? In, in Zaire at the time. Yeah. And I just coincidentally was in Bukavu. There's a national park outside of Bukavu on Lake Kivu called Kauzi Biega. And there are growers, gorillas there. And when I arrived and found out there were gorillas outside of town, I was mesmerized. And I I learned about a Belgian conservationist, um, Adrian de Schreiber, who basically was managing the park. And in 1973, I think it's fair to say he was probably the first guy who had this idea of habituating gorillas, mm. getting them used to people, wild gorillas that would tolerate the presence of people coming to visit them. And he was just beginning this. And when I learned that he was doing it, I decided that I would be his guinea pig. And so a couple of Peace Corps volunteers and I basically found out where he lived and we marched to his home, introduced ourselves. We were youngsters at the time, 21, 22 years old. We basically said, hey, we'd like to volunteer to go out into the field to introduce ourselves to gorillas. And he basically agreed. And um, so over the course of the next couple of months, he introduced us to Grower's Gorilla in Gauzi Biega National Park. Um, and I was smitten. I, I was hooked. Um, and years later, I had the opportunity in the late 1970s to come to Rwanda and work with Diane Fossey as a researcher. Now, this was after you'd established your credentials as some sort of a gorilla expert or or just continuing your enthusiasm? So the crazy story here is that the Peace Corps volunteers that I was working with in 1973, the guys that I went out to see Grower's Gorillas with. Is, sorry, Grower's Gorilla, is that a, a subspecies? It, it's a subspecies of mountain gorilla. Okay. So mountain gorillas in Rwanda and Uganda and uh, and, and Congo, um, a northern uh, place in Congo, north of Kazibiega. Um, those are Gorilla Gorilla Beringii, um, what people call mountain gorillas, and Grower's Gorilla is a subspecies that live in the same area. Okay. Um, at any rate, um, these Peace Corps volunteers ended up years later working with Diane Fossey. And as the story goes, um, she spent about six months in the States looking for an additional researcher, looking for somebody who was going to help with anti-poaching work, do re- research on other gorillas in the area, and um, finally found somebody, identified him, invited him to come to um, Rwanda to work with her. He showed up basically marched up the mountain in a rainstorm up to his knees in mud, um, was miserable by the time he arrived, um, said hello to Diane, slept the evening at camp, got up the next morning and said, I can't do this, and (laughs) left the mountain. 
<laughs> that evening. Job I, opening. <laughs> job opening. That evening, um, my friends were sitting around the dinner table with Diane. She's devastated that she'd spent all of this time looking for somebody to help with uh, the research and do anti-poaching work. She's saying, do you guys know anybody, anybody who who knows a little bit about Africa, who has language ability, who wouldn't mind coming to live at 10,000 feet on a, a, an extinct volcanic mountain to study mountain gorillas. And Bill and Amy basically looked at each other and said, yeah, Craig Shawley. And these are the people you had been with years earlier. It is. Okay. It is. And Diane just spontaneously said, you know, write Craig and see if, in fact, he's interested. Had you been in touch with them over those years? Not, not no. I mean, a little bit. Okay. But I basically was in inner city Baltimore right. working as a science teacher when I got a letter out of the clear blue sky saying, you have an opportunity to come to Rwanda, work with gorillas, <laughs> work with mountain wow. uh, gorillas and Diane. And, um, I looked at the letter and I wrote back very, very quickly, said, I'd like to finish the school year a couple of months from now, but then I'm on board a plane if, in fact, you can help me pay for it. Wow. Diane helped me get an LSB Leakey grant and I was off. And um, that's how I effectively ended up working with gorillas in Rwanda. That's fantastic. I, I love those stories of, of serendipity. Just changing the course of someone's life. My, my life has been a matter of serendipity. I, I've been lucky in a whole variety of different ways. That ultimately led um, years later to the African Wildlife Foundation contacting me, and they were looking for a director of the entire conservation program in Rwanda. And so mm -hmm. in the late 80s, I ended up in Rwanda directing uh, the Mountain Gorilla Project, which was basically led by the African Wildlife Foundation. When when was the, the the troubles in Rwanda? So the the, the first inkling of trouble um, in the latter part of of the twenty first century was was effectively um, in the early nineties. In the early nineties. And I, um, I had just finished my job as director of the Mountain Gorilla Project, and and again, sir, endipity, I I ended up being the scientific advisor on the first natural history film that they ever did, and the subject matter was mountain gorillas, mm. and I was in Rwanda when the war began, um, was basically up on a mountaintop when we heard gunfire and and bombs blowing up across the way on another mountain. Uh -huh. And that's another story. Uh, but it ultimately led to an evacuation from Rwanda. I went back a couple of months later. Um, things had improved for a period of time, but then the war broke out again. And so over the course of six months, I was evacuated from Rwanda two times. And in mm. the aftermath of that, um, effectively, we're talking about um, a million people dead. Yeah. Yeah. Were you with Diane when she was killed? I was not. I, I was back in the States. Uh, that was mid-80s, 1985. And, mm -hmm. and so I was back in the States at that time and learned about her death via the news. What do you think of the way that was handled? I guess you've seen the film, The Gorillas in the Mist. I was actually in Rwanda directing the Mountain Gorilla Project when it premiered. I went back for the premiere of the movie. And um, I, I think... 
Oh, it's safe to say that I think it was very Hollywood-esque. Um, it, uh, it, it gave a, a really, really nice overview of some of the strengths of Diane, some of the problems with conservation during that period of time. Obviously, gorillas were being killed, um, but it, uh, it was sugar-coated. There's no question about it, not only in terms of the way that gorillas were being killed, but also in terms of Diane's character. Hmm. That's interesting, because... I saw it when it came out, which was, what, 20 years ago or more. Um, I remember it depicting her as being somewhat brittle and stubborn and hard to get along with and not very kind to the local people. So multiply that about 10 times and then, and <laughs> then, the reality. And then you've got the, the real Diane. Yeah. But again, I, I, you know, I worked with Diane. I, I have huge respect yeah. for what Diane did. Um, she basically brought the plight of mountain gorillas to world attention um, under the umbrella of National Geographic, the magazine and the documentaries that were being done during that period of time. And um, and so, you know, she's a hero in that particular regard. But I, I, I think it's really, really important for everybody to understand that conservation was very, very different during that period of time. Right. It was it was basically um, a white person's project. Mm-hmm. Um, there weren't a lot of Africans involved. And, and therefore, um, there was a colonial touch to it yeah. in every way, shape, and form. The, the beauty of what's happened today is that things have evolved. And I work for an organization, the African Wildlife Foundation, that is largely led by Africans. Our CEO is a Ugandan based in Nairobi at this particular point, Kadu Sabunya, um, who's got a phenomenal background in economics and wildlife. And, um, and he's got a very, very different vision for African wildlife conservation. Um, if, in fact, it's going to be successful, it's got to produce products that are good for wildlife and people. Um, and so that's what we've been doing for the last 20 years. We're 60 years old, but over the last 20 years, we've, we've basically evolved conservation from something that was very, very Western-centric to something that is now African-led and, and basically has an African perspective that's really important. Do you think Diane's death in some ways accelerated that process? Um, I think there were two paths during Diane's later days. Um, The vision of the Mountain Gorilla Project and African Wildlife Foundation was really a partnership um, of conservation during that period of time. So even though I was the director of the Mountain Gorilla Project, I was working hand-in-hand with the Rwandan National Park System and their appointee who led the national park. We worked as a team. And I was there to help build capacity and ensure that there was a handover at some point in time so that Rwandan National Parks could be responsible for Volcanoes National Park and the future of gorillas. Mm. And I'm happy to say that that's happened. Um, I mean, the beauty of that is... Rwanda is now one of Africa's strongest conservation countries. And um, I'm really, really proud to say that I'm part of a a technical team at this particular point that is working with the Rwandan government to actually expand the boundaries of Volcanoes National Park. Mountain gorillas are very different than all other great apes in the world. They're the only population of great ape in the world that's actually increasing. As a result of that, they need more land, more habitat. The Rwandan government has built, bought into that, and they effectively are working with a bunch of conservation 
organizations like African Wildlife Foundation to expand the boundaries and creating situations that, again, are great for gorillas in the future. But all of this is linked to an economy that is growing and linked to wildlife assets on the ground. And the economy is growing largely due to increased wildlife-oriented tourism? Yeah. I mean, that's part of it. I mean, Rwanda is very, very progressive. And and so there are lots of reasons why the economy is growing there. But a lot of what the economy was linked to historically is based on mountain gorilla tourism. Mm. And so this whole idea of habituating gorillas as we did as researchers was part of the mountain gorilla project, habituating habituating gorillas so that international tourists could come to visit. Was that the the aim of the Belgian that you originally worked with? It it was. It was a dream of his way back when. and, And I think 20 years later, we brought it to fruition using that idea. And I mean, I chuckle when um, when I started with the Mountain Gorilla Project, the permit uh, fee to go trek mountain gorillas was seventy five dollars. Today, the fee is fifteen hundred dollars. And if you multiply that times the number of gorilla permits that are available today versus way back when income on an annual basis in Rwanda, just from gorilla tourism in the permits is about fifty five million dollars a year. Mm. That's so that's substantial, yeah. and and a lot of that filters down to the local Does community. Yeah, I was going to ask, and 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 so what we're talking about is a situation wherein the community is bought into gorilla conservation. They're champions of gorilla conservation because they recognize that their livelihood, the future of their kids, is linked to the idea that gorillas are always going to exist up in the mountains that live on the periphery of the agriculturalized fields where they live. Mm. And, you know, that that is something that I think can apply not only to gorillas, but to wildlife throughout the continent. And and you think about that in terms of, of at least one of the, the approaches that conservation uses today. And, and again, buying in um, from an African audience there is, is much easier because you've got money involved. Do you ever meet Richard Leakey? I did, yeah, several times, yeah. yeah. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but... I remember there was uh, he recruited uh, Diane Fossey and Jane Goodall and uh, Maria Gimbutas. Is that okay? So you're you're actually talking about um, his dad. You're oh, ta- you're talking about Louis Leakey. Louis, okay, yeah. right. And Louis Leakey right. was the 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 guy who recruit recruited uh, um, uh, Jane Goodall first. Um, then he realized that there were other great apes out there. Jane, of course, studied chimpanzees. Right. He recruited Diane to study. Um, uh, mountain gorillas, and then ultimately the the last great ape was the orangutan, and he recruited a Canadian by the name of Birute uh, Golticus. Golticus, okay, yeah, and uh, so they were the the leaky ladies, yeah. for a period of time. And was his thinking again? I may be wrong about this. It's a long time since I've read about this, but I think Jane Goodall had no background at all in biology or animal behavior or any of that. But Leakey was impressed by her 
uh, seriousness and her commitment. And he had the idea that women would be better at this job than men. Yeah, that's that's fair to say. I mean, he okay. he basically thought that the female character was better suited to to, to be a researcher in that particular regard. And right. you know, certainly Jane proved him right. I mean, she's iconic in the world of uh, field research. Um, I think it's safe to say that Diane was a, a pretty good researcher, and and uh, the same is certainly true of Bidu committed, Jane. very committed, absolutely, yeah. yes. And what do you think about that as a man? in this field do you is there a, a sort of a gender oriented uh, advantage that women might have to relating to other primates huh I I've never ever thought about that I mean my life has revolved uh, a lot around gorillas and research and being in the field for long periods of time um, I think I did a pretty reasonable job, but by the same token, <laughs> by the same token, I know a lot of women yeah. who've been very, very successful also. And, and so I, I don't necessarily think it's a male-female thing. I think it's all about character and in, interest and, and passion in that particular regard. So what, I mean, I've been very, very lucky in terms of the opportunities that I've been provided. Yeah. What do you think makes someone well-suited for this sort of work? I'm not the institutional work and the political stuff that you've been doing, but just researching animals, being with non-human primates in particular. Um, I think it requires an awful lot of patience and persistence. Um, when I started working with mountain gorillas, one of my tasks was actually to habituate a wild group of gorillas. So, I mean, I was out in the forest day after day mm. after day, and for probably four months, um, I never, ever saw a gorilla. I was tracking gorillas with trackers. Um, I was occasionally seeing fleeting glimpses of black in the vegetation. I was getting rod and screamed at from afar. Uh. Um but I wasn't seeing things. And, yeah. and so, you know, persistence and patience is, is really, really important. Um, I think, um, again, if you're a researcher out in that kind of situation, um, you likely aren't going to care a great deal about material things. I mean, it's pretty rugged and primitive in many of those situations. I was living at 10,000 feet on an extinct volcano out in the middle of nowhere. Um, I was living in a corrugated tin hut, you know, taking a bath out of a, a little round tub, um, many, many times no hot water. Um, Food and, and other materials were packed in on a weekly basis, and and so it's not that I had a lot of diversity in terms of cuisine. Uh, so <laughs> not much nightlife. No, there wasn't any nightlife. Um, it was around the fire with the guys in camp, and yeah. occasionally, you know, we did a meal together. So, uh, and it was all about you know making sure that uh, the research that you. Uh, had done that day, the the data was being compiled appropriately and, and analyzed. Do you remember the first time that the gorillas allowed you to be in their presence and sort of accepted the, this persistent pain in the ass guy in the bushes? Is I, be I remember it clearly. I mean, I just told you that I, you know, I spent, you know, months following the same group of gorillas without seeing an awful lot. Um, and um, were they collared or how were you tracking? No, them? no, no. We were tracking basically. Oh, just tracking yeah, the I mean, bush. they obviously push down vegetation right. as they move through the forest, right. and and so if you learn tracking skills, you learn which direction they're moving in and can follow them. And again, if we're talking about gorillas, you're talking about a, a family group, and so in in this particular group, there were as many as ten gorillas, and and so when you've got 
10 gorillas moving through the vegetation, there's there's a path to follow. So you have a silverback, a few adult females, and the young? Yeah, you've got um, silverback. You, I mean, there are multi-silverback groups. In this particular group, there was one silverback, a number of adult females, and then uh, sub-adults and juveniles and, and infants. Right. And those are the categories that you typically look at. Um, I would... I would say on this particular day, um, I I knew that I was close to the gorillas, and and suddenly there was a lot of noise um, in the vegetation, and they were off and running, and I was you know basically trying to keep up with them, just following trail, and I I was moving quickly through the forest, and ultimately I arrived at a really really deep ravine. Um, I mean, it dropped off about a hundred feet, mm. um, and it's like whoa, I'm stopping here. Um, the gorillas went down the ravine and um, I've got to be very very careful at this particular point and as I'm trying to analyze how I'm going to get down and then up the other side I realized that the group had already done that and they were basically across the ravine and they were looking at me ah. and and it must have been one of those situations we're in okay we've got the security of the ravine between us right we're gonna stop and really take a look at this wild and crazy white ape that continues to follow us on a daily basis and so you know with my binoculars i could i could you know basically see the silverback sitting there looking at me and the rest of the family was doing the same and that was really a breakthrough moment because a couple of months later i basically was sitting in the midst of the family hmm. so what did you do did you just sit there and let them observe you absolutely i yeah. did and and i observed them too and and i didn't go down the ravine following them right. i Good i move. basically said hey this is this is a, a lot of success today i'm going to yeah. leave it at that and we'll see what happens tomorrow yeah and progressively on a day-to-day basis everything got better and um, in the end i was sitting them sitting with them as i'm sitting with you and that's a pretty special moment i'll bet that and have you experienced that enough that it's become normalized for you or is that still just every time it happens it's, incredible it's never ever normal going out to see a group of gorillas i yeah. i've got probably tens of thousands of hours with gorillas more than most people in the entire world but but if i ever ever get tired of <laughs> visiting a gorilla group then it's yeah. time to put me in the ground yeah <laughs> yeah I understand that. I saw a video uh, of you, a YouTube video, which I'll attach to to this podcast episode, where, uh, yeah, you were a, a male, a silverback, came right up to you, and you sort of went down into a submissive, looking down, no eye contact, uh, and then he just sort of like checked you out for a minute and walked by. Did you know that gorilla, or is that a, a novel encounter? So so that's a gorilla that I actually didn't know. Um, I was leading a, a group of tourists on, on that particular day, and, um, and the silverback came out of the vegetation, and I asked everybody to move back, and he continued to approach, and I didn't have the opportunity to get out of the way. And so it's like, well, I don't know this guy, but I do know gorilla etiquette, so I know how to behave. And as a result of that, that I just, uh, I was submissive. I made a couple of vocalizations uh, that meant that, um, you know, I understood he was the boss. And he came up kind of right beside me, looked at me, and then it's like, okay, 
this guy knows that I'm the boss. Mm. I'm going to keep moving on. They're not confrontational, are they? No. Gorillas, unlike chimpanzees, are are basically gentle giants. And um, um, they are huge, big, powerful animals that can do a lot of harm. But generally, they uh, have a very, very gentle social life. Have you been charged? Um, during the habituation process, I, I was charged many, many times, and uh, and then yeah, there are some pretty scary incidents that uh, that had me thinking about whether or not I was going to walk away from them. And you always did. I did, yeah, yeah. So there are always false charges, intimidation. Um, I've I've been struck by a gorilla. Oh, really? I, I've been knocked off my feet by a gorilla. Wow. Yeah, um, it's not something that happens normally. Uh, but there was an occasion um, not so long ago when I had another group of, of tourists into the forest, and um, we'd basically been trekking for um, a period of time, and, and we ended up in an area of the mountain that I knew. And um, I, I got very, very excited because we were in the, um, the, the bottom of a volcanic caldera. Um, obviously, it was an extinct volcano, and it was really, really open, um, open grass as opposed to dense vegetation. And I thought, wow, if we ha- find the gorilla group here, we're going to have phenomenal viewing. And we walked another 10 minutes, rounded a corner, and there in front of us were 35 gorillas Whew. all at the same time. And it was like I looked at everybody and said, this is as good as it's going to get. This is fantastic. And as I was saying that, a young female came rushing through the middle of the group and grabbed a fallen log, drug it along, and just created riotous behavior from everybody else. Everybody was rawing and screaming and obviously angry. And I looked at the guide and I said, what is going on here? I said, that's unusual behavior. And he looked at me and he said, so that female just transferred into the group three days Uh. ago. She's the new guy. And um, I I said, okay, now I understand. She's obviously trying to figure out where in the hierarchy she's going to sit. Mm -hmm. And so throughout the next hour, this riotous behavior continued and females squabbling with each other, blackbacks, chest beating, running here, there, and everywhere, the silverback, you know, intervening in all of these fights. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, he was pretty angry. Right. Um, You've created a lot of chaos for Yeah, him. it's like, hey, you know, my mellow lifestyle is disrupted. <laughs> yeah. I don't like this. Yeah. So we spent our hour with the gorillas, and just as we were about to leave, I turned around, and the silverback is marching right toward us. And I saw pursed lips. He was strutting um, as opposed to just a a leisurely walk. Um, And I thought, okay, he's going to reprimand somebody. And we were in the middle of a bamboo thicket, and uh, there was no place to go. And I said, I know somebody's going to get reprimanded here. So I asked everybody to get behind me, and uh, they did. And the silverback came right to me, basically went bipedal, went down on the ground, and then punched me with his fist right in the gut. Wow. And and it was a good punch. I mean, I'm a Were pretty big guy. Upright? I was standing. Uh-huh. I, I and I'm a pretty big guy and he basically lifted me off my feet and sent me flying through the vegetation. And he actually made a fist. Totally. Wow. Totally. 
and I got nailed right in the gut. And I mean, I have no doubt that he could have killed me yeah. had he wanted to, but it was a reprimand, mm. um, and and rightfully so. And um, and so uh, you know, I got up with a smile on my face. Everybody said, "Are you okay?" And I said, "Amazingly, I am okay." And I said, "Now you see the power of the silverback." So he just took a slug and then yeah. turned it's around like, and walked hey, away. Hey, I'm done with you guys. It was symbolic. It was symbolic. Yeah, I mean, he reprimanded me the same way he would have reprimanded another gorilla. Right. Wow. Incredible. Because I do not want to be reprimanded, <laughs> I'm going to let this go, even though I'd love to talk with you longer. We're eating into your lunch hour, and you're very busy. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, Chris, before we go, can I can I just tell you a little bit you, about the exhibition? You can tell me anything you want. Okay, so I'm, I'm here in... Um, in Tanzania at this particular point, we're in Arusha, we're at Cultural Heritage, and we're setting up um, a photographic uh, exhibition that is the result of a photographic competition named after the president of Tanzania. It's called the Nkapa Awards, and it's totally and completely Africa-focused. And um, this is the first year. Uh, basically, the exhibition is a result of over 9,000 images being juried from 50 countries throughout the world. And um, we've got 79 images in the exhibition. Um, you've seen it. I, uh, I've spent three hours looking at them. Amazing. And they're pretty exceptional images yeah. uh, that I'm very, very proud of. And uh, I'm hoping that this is going to be an annual thing. And obviously, we encourage international audiences to uh, to go online, check out what the exhibition is all about. Uh, but then if you're a photographer, if you've been to Africa, we encourage you to enter also. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, fantastic images. And and I noticed some of, there are several from the same photographer. Yes. So there's definitely room for people to make submissions uh, for next year. They're going to be, uh, I hope it grows. I'm sure it will grow. Completely. Um, but yeah, anyone who's been to, to Africa with a decent camera and a good eye <laughs> should definitely submit. It's, I, I agree. Um, it, it's one of those things wherein um, the winners this year come from all over the world. And um, there are some pros, some semi-pros, but there are some amateurs out there also. And yeah. we've got a youth category right. that represents the international audience and also the African audience. And... Um, some of their photographs are absolutely amazing. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, we're talking about kids less less than 18 years old who've done a magnificent job. Yeah, yeah. Great. Uh, I've taken some photographs of the photos. Oh, good. Perfect. It, can I, is it all right to post a couple it of those? It is, yeah, all absolutely. Right. All right. I also photographed the the, the sheet, the information sheet. So good, the, good, good. The photo will be credited Perfect. as well. All right, Craig, thank you very much, man. My, my pleasure, Chris. I really appreciate right. your Happy time. Happy to meet you. All right, kids. That was Craig Scholey, a uh, really interesting guy. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. And I will post photographs of uh, the photographs, two or three of them. Don't want to abuse the privilege, but you can find those on my Substack page, chrisryan.substack.com, where all these po podcasts are posted. The um, comments and the conversation around them are all there. You can subscribe to my Substack page for a low, low fee of uh, 50 bucks a year, which is four something a month. Um, yeah, or five bucks a month. Or you can just subscribe for free and you'll get an email when a podcast comes out or when I put up a, 
an article, an essay or whatever. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm going to stop bothering you now. I'm going to play you out with the amazing Carsey Blanton. Hope everything's going well for you. My name's Carsey Blanton. I am an old friend of Chris Ryan's, and I'm excited to play you my song, Smoke Alarm. He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. And what's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. For a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest Shut it up, but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about an obligation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say When everyone we've ever known Is heading for a headstone Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.